Welcome to The Narrator Presents. I'm your host, The Narrator. Today we're going to be looking at Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, Young Goodman Brown. Now, we've already covered a little bit of Nathaniel Hawthorne in this podcast. And in this specific episode, I'm not going to be talking too much about Nathaniel Hawthorne. I'm also going to be focusing on Young Goodman Brown. So if you're interested in some more background on Nathaniel Hawthorne, I recommend checking out the episode titled Dr. Heidegger's Experiment. Talk a little bit more about Hawthorne there. All right, so with this episode, what we're looking at here today is Young Goodman Brown. And there's a few things we need to know about, a little background before we jump into the story, just so this story makes more sense and you can enjoy the story a lot more. The first thing you should know about this story is that Hawthorne, with a lot of his short stories, dealt with Puritan society. And this short story is, or rather can be considered, an allegory uh, displaying Puritan life and their beliefs in the whole shebang, right? So well, the first thing we need to know is Puritans. Now, if you're not familiar with Puritans, think of the Salem witch trials. Basically, that was all Puritan life. Or if you think back to your high school days, think of The Crucible by Arthur Miller. That's straight up Puritans right there. But just in case your mind's a little foggy from Puritans, uh, let's just check Puritans out real quick. Now, the the main thing to understand about the Puritans was that they were truly obsessed with their religion, and they were very strict. I mean, man, were they strict to, to an extreme level. So first, they leave England because the church in England wasn't strict enough for them. They wanted a church that didn't have glass windows, or rather stained glass windows, images, candles. They didn't want any of that. They wanted straight up, just hardcore biblical life essentially is what they wanted because they rejected the showy church of england essentially you know with the cathedrals and all that all that good stuff there now they the puritans led very somber lives uh, pretty much governed solely by a strict interpretation of the bible i mean their bible was like their bible <laughs> they went uh according to it 100 percent non-stop i mean there was no nonsense in puritan society there, there was no dancing allowed gambling drama no fun in any way whatsoever i believe i said this in the last podcast episode where we covered Hawthorne that if you were having fun it meant that the devil was working through you which is a uh, pretty pretty scary there so with the Puritans um, they pretty much had a very strict life and their life was hard in terms of meaning they believed in hard work and just working essentially and reading from the Bible that's all they really went with now they said that faith is what is necessary to get into heaven so they, they truly believed big time in heaven and in hell. So if you didn't get into heaven, you're going straight to hell. There's no in-between here. There's no forgiveness. There's just you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell, right? As Puritans believe there a little bit. Basically, the sins as defined by the Bible are to be avoided, pretty much cut out of, of life. So any sin that the Bible mentions should be cut out from your life if you were a Puritan at this time period. Now, the most famous or rather infamous scenario involving the Puritans is the Salem witch trials that pretty much ended killing a lot of people really and if you're not again if you're not familiar with Salem witch trials it basically dealt with a lot of people being accused of being witches and they were sent to trial without any proof so essentially what you did was Let's say, for example, your neighbor has a larger backyard and you have a small backyard and you're thinking about getting an in-ground in pool, but
but you don't have enough room, but your neighbor does. So if you were living in Puritan society, all you had to do was say, hey, my neighbor is a witch. And that's it, done. You pretty much just condemn that person to death. And now you could take their, their land. Essentially, that's really what was going on there. That's the real truth with the Puritans there. They're just greedy bastards at some point in time. <laughs> all right, so and without saying too much, you're getting into a whole Puritan lesson. You know, it's, I don't want to go into all that. But there is one last thing I do want to mention about the Puritans that is geared specifically to this short story, Young Goodman Brown. And that is that Puritans believed that the last place the devil resided was in the forest, in the woods. So Puritans, again, I'm not 100% sure on this. I'm sure historians will tell you a better version of this. They believe that, Puritans believe that if you went into the woods, you would find the devil because this is where... The devil resides. It's the last sanctuary for the devil, essentially. So when we look at Young Goodman Brown here, we're going to see Young Goodman Brown going into the forest. So when he goes into the forest, and essentially it's an, this this story is an allegory. So we have Young Goodman Brown going into this forest, which is essentially the devil's playground. And while he does this, Young Goodman Brown, he leaves behind his wife, Faith. You see that her name itself, Faith, right? You see how this becomes an allegory? So we have essentially young Goodman Brown leaving faith and going into the darkened wood, right? Or the dark wood. So essentially he's losing his faith, so to speak, right? So there you go. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne believed that this short story wasn't anything amazing or anything great. And Edgar Allan Poe, again, one of his contemporaries, and again, being a very harsh critic, said that this was a wonderful story that was really good. It was well-written. And I agree. I mean, personally, Young Goodman Brown is one of my favorite short stories, if not my favorite short story from Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's such a great story. It's not even funny. So before we jump right into it, the, la the few things I want to say about it, or the final things I want to say about this story, just pay attention to the names of the people here in this story. I mean... Now, our main character, Young Goodman Brown, right? We have Young Goodman Brown, Young Goodman, right? Named Brown. And then we have his wife, Faith, right? Essentially, his faith. So we have that. And one, one thing you need to know about Puritans and the way, it was, the way they addressed each other, when you hear the word goody, goody just basically means Mrs. or Miss or Miss, you know, just a, a formal way of addressing a woman at the time. All right, and finally, the last thing I'm going to say about Young Goodman Brown here is 17th century Salem. That's where this story takes place. And again, with all Nathaniel Hawthorne's works, this is a common, common setting, really. And the theme that we're going to be seeing in this specific short story is the conflict between good and evil and human nature, and in particular, the, uh, the problems of public goodness and private wickedness. I mean, we all see public figures, right? And they all seem great and good. Maybe some celebrities we could think of that seem amazing. You know, they're incapable of doing any harm or bad. But in private, who knows, right? I mean, in private, they could be doing some horrible, wicked stuff, you know? So who, it's, and that's the way that our world is. The good and evil, it's a blurred line. It's so, so difficult to really say what's good and what's evil when you really start to think about it. it it's pretty intense. And that's just the way the world is, essentially. 
And so we're going to see a lot of that in the short story. So as we go through it, see if you can find out who the so-called public figures that are supposed to be good are and if they really are good. You know, they can smile at you in public and seem all nice, but who knows how they are in private, right? They could be wicked as hell. So that's always, that's always something to think about there. All right, so uh, finally, before we jump into the story, I know I keep saying this, and I'm sorry, I'm just like, I'm just like the, the guy here who just says, one more thing, one more thing, like constantly, right? <laughs> All right, so this, young, uh, this story, is, Young Goodman Brown, is, is studied in many high schools throughout the world, I would assume, and also throughout universities. I mean, the first time I read Young Goodman Brown, it was, believe it or not, at a university, and I fell in love with this story immediately. It's really that good, at least I, I think so. But anyways, again, you be the judge of that. So, finally, enough of my chat, and let's get into it. Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street of Salem Village, but put his head back after crossing the threshold to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife. And Faith, as the wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street, letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap while she called to Goodman Brown. Dearest heart, whispered she, softly and rather sadly, when her lips were close to his ear, pray thee, put off your journey until sunrise and sleep in your own bed tonight. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she's afeard of herself sometimes. Pray, tarry me with this night, dear husband, of all nights in the year. My love and my faith, replied young Goodman Brown, of all nights in the year, this one night must I tarry away from thee. My journey, as thou callest, forth and back again, must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet, pretty wife, dost thou doubt me already, and we but three months married? Then God bless you, said Faith, with the pink ribbons, and may you find all well when you come back. Amen, cried Goodman Brown. Say thy prayers, dear Faith and go to bed at dusk, and no harm will come to thee. So they parted, and the young man pursued his way until, being about to turn the corner by the meeting house, he looked back and saw the head of Faith still peeping after him, with a melancholy air in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, he thought, for his heart smote him. What a wretch am I, to leave her on such an errand. She talks of dreams, too. Methought, as she spoke, there was trouble in her face, as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done tonight. But no, no, t'would kill her to think it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night, I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future, Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose. He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through and close immediately behind. It was all as lonely as could be, and there is this peculiarity in such a solitude that the traveler knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick boughs overhead, so that, with lonely footsteps, he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude. There may be a devilish Indian behind every tree, said Goodman Brown to himself, and he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, 
What if the devil himself should be at my very elbow? His head being turned back, he passed the crook of the road, and looking forward again, beheld the figure of a man, in grave and decent attire, seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose, a Goodman Brown's approach, and walked onward side by side with him. You are late, Goodman Brown, he said. The clock of the Old South was striking as I came through Boston, and that is full fifty minutes gone. Faith kept me back a while, replied the young man, with a tremor in his voice caused by the sudden appearance of his companion, though not wholly unexpected. It was now deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it, where these two were journeying. As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveler was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown, and bearing a considerable resemblance to him, though perhaps more in expression than features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son, and yet, though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world, and would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner table or in King William's court, were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake, so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. Come, Goodman Brown, cried his fellow traveler. This is a dull pace for the beginning of a journey. Take my staff, if you are so soon weary. Friend, said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop. Having kept convenient by meeting thee here, it is my purpose now to return whence I came. I have scruples, touching the matter thou wottest of. Sayest thou so, replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. Let us walk on, nevertheless, reasoning as we go, and if I convenience thee not, thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way in the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the good man, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs, and shall I be the first of the name of Brown that ever took this path and kept such company thou wouldst say, observed the older person, interrupting his pause. Well said, Goodman Brown. I have been as well acquainted with your family as with ever a one among the Puritans, and that's no trifle to say. I helped your grandfather, the constable, when he lashed the Quaker woman so smartly through the streets of Salem. And it was I that brought your father a pitch-pine knot, kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. They were my good friends, both, and many a pleasant walk have we had along this path, and returned merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you for their sake. If it be as thou sayest, replied Goodman Brown, I marvel they never spoke of these matters, or verily I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England. We are a people of prayer, and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. Wickedness or not, said the traveler with the twisted staff, I have a very general acquaintance here in New England. 
The deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. The selectmen of divers towns make me their chairman, and a majority of the great and general courts are firm supporters of my interest. The governor and I, too, but these are state secrets. Can this be so? cried Goodman Brown, with a state of amazement at his undisturbed companion. Howbeit, I have nothing to do with the governor and council. They have their own ways, and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, how should I meet the eye of that good old man or minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble, both Sabbath day and lecture day. Thus far, the elder traveler had listened with due gravity, but now, burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. <laughs> he shouted again and again, then composing himself. Well, go on, Goodman Brown, go on, but pray thee, don't kill me with laughing. Well then, to end the matter at once, said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled, there is my wife, Faith. It would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own. Nay, if that be the case, answered the other, go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not, for twenty old women like the one hobbling before us, that faith should come to any harm. As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure on the path, in whom Goodman Brown recognized the very pious and exemplary dame, who had taught him his catechisms in youth and was still his moral and spiritual advisor, jointly with the minister and Deacon Gukin. A marvel, truly, that Goody Cloyce should be so far in the wilderness and nightfall, said he. But with your leave, friend, I shall take a cut through the woods until we have left this Christian woman behind. Being a stranger to you, she might ask whom I was consorting with and whither I was going. Be it so, said his fellow traveler. Betake you to the woods, and let me keep the path. Accordingly, the young man turned aside, but took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road, until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way, with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer, doubtless, as she went. The traveler put forth his staff, and touched her withered neck with what seemed a serpent's tail. The devil! screamed the pious old lady. Then Goody Cloyce knows her old friend, observed the traveler, confronting her and leaning on his wreathing stick. Ah, forsooth, and is it your worship indeed? cried the good dame. Yeah, truly is it. And in the very image of my old gossip Goodman Brown, the grandfather of the silly fellow that now is. But... Would your worship believe it? My broomstick hath strangely disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by the unhanged witch, Goody Cory, and that too, when I was all anointed with the juice of smallage and sink foil and wolf's bane, mingled with fine wheats and the fat of a newborn babe, said the shape of old Goodman Brown. Ah, your worship knows the recipe, cried the old lady, cackling aloud. So, as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, I made up my mind to foot it, for they tell me there is a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. But now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling. That can hardly be, answered her friend. I may not spare you my arm, goody Cloyce, 
But here is my staff, if you will. So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where, perhaps, it assumed life, being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to Egyptian magi. Of this fact, however, Goodman Brown could not take cognizance. He had cast up his eye in astonishment, and looking down again, beheld neither Goody Cloys nor the serpentine staff, but his fellow traveler alone, who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened. That old woman taught me my catechism, said the young man, and there was a world of meaning in this simple comment. They continued to walk onward, while the elder traveler exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path, discoursing so aptly that his arguments seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to serve for a walking stick, and began to strip it of the twigs and little boughs which were wet with evening dew. The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered and dried up, as with a weak sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded, at a good free pace, until suddenly, in a gloomy hollow of the road, Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree and refused to go any farther. Friend, he said stubbornly, my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand. What if a wretched old woman do choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is that any reason why I should quit my dear faith and go after her? You will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance composedly. Sit here and rest yourself a while, and when you feel like moving again, there is my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick, and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly and thinking with how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk, nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin. And what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but purely and sweetly now, in the arms of faith? Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tramp of horses along the road, and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest, conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof-tramps, and the voices of the riders, two grave old voices, conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road, within a few yards of the young man's hiding-place, but owing, doubtless, to the death of the gloom at that particular spot, neither the travelers nor their steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small boughs by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted even for a moment the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky, athwart which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as his durst without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more, because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, that he recognized the voices of the minister and deacon Gookin, jogging along quietly, as they were wont to do when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council. While yet within hearing, one of the riders stopped to pluck a switch. Of the two, reverend sir, said the voice like the deacons, I had rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting. They tell me that some of our community are to be here from Falmouth and beyond, and others from the Connecticut and Rhode Island. 
besides several of the Indian powwows, who, after this fashion, know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken into communion. Mighty well, Deacon Gukin, replied the solemn old tones of the minister. Spur up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground. The hoofs clattered again, and the voices, talking so strangely in the empty air, passed on through the forest, where no church had ever been gathered, nor solitary Christian prayed. Whether then could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink down the ground, faint and with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up to the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him, yet there was the blue ark and the stars brightening in it. With heaven above and faith below, I will yet stand firm against the devil, cried Goodman Brown. While he gazed upward into the deep arc of the firmament and had lifted his hands to pray, a cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the brightening stars. The blue sky was still visible, except directly overhead where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if from the depths of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once, the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accent of townspeople of his own, men and women, both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest, whispering without a wind. Then came a stronger swell of those familiar tones, heard daily in the sunshine at Salem Village, but never until now from a cloud of night. There was one voice of a young woman uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow and entreating for some favor which, perhaps, it would grieve her to obtain. And all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. Faith! shouted Goodman Brown, in a voice of agony and desperation, and the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, Faith! Faith! as if bewildered wretches were seeking her all through the wilderness. The cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response. There was a scream drowned immediately in a louder murmur of voices, fading into far-off laughter as the dark cloud swept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down through the air and caught on the branch of a tree. The young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. My faith is gone, he cried, after one stupefied moment. There is no good on earth, and sin is but a name. Come, devil, for to thee is this world given. And maddened with despair, so that he laughed loud and long, did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path rather than to walk or run. The road grew wilder and drier, and more faintly traced and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness, still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal man to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of the trees, the howling of wild beasts, and the yells of Indians, while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell, and sometimes gave a broad roar around the traveler as if all nature were laughing him to scorn. 
but he was himself the chief horror of the scene and shrank not from his other horrors. <laughs> roared Goodman Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us hear which will laugh loudest. Think not to frighten me with your deviltry. Come witch, come wizard, come Indian powwow, come devil himself. And here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fear you. In truth, all through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of horrid blasphemy, and now shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest laughing like demons around him. The fiend in his own shape is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of man. Thus sped the demoniac on his course until, quivering among the trees, he saw a red light before him, as when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire, and throw up their lord blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward and heard the swell of what seemed a hymn, rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. He knew the tune. It was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting house. The verse died heavily away and was lengthened by a chorus not of human voices, but of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, and his cry was lost to his own ear by its unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence, he stole forward until the light glared full upon his eyes. At one extremity of an open space, hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest, arose a rock, bearing some rude natural resemblance either to an altar or a pulpit, and surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame, their steams untouched, like candles at an evening meeting. The mass of foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night and fitfully illuminating the whole field. Each pendant twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red lights arose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. A grave and dark-clad company, quoth Goodman Brown. In truth, they were such. Among them, quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others which, Sabbath after Sabbath, looked devoutly heavenward and devilishly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land. Some affirm that the lady of the governor was there, at least there were high dames well known to her, and wives of honored husbands and widows, great multitude and ancient maidens, all of excellent reputes and fair young girls, who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleams of light flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized a score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their especial sanctity. Good old Deacon Gookin had arrived and waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his reverend pastor. But, irreverently consorting with these grave, reputable, and pious people, these elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives and women of spotted fame, wretches given over to all mean and filthy vice, and suspected even of horrid crimes. It was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked nor were the sinners abashed by the saints, 
Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests, or powwows, who had often scarred their native forests with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where is faith? thought Goodman Brown, and as hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose, a slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin, and darkly hinted at far more, unfathomable to the mere mortals in the lore of fiends. Verse after verse was sung, and still the chorus of the desert swelled between, like the deepest tone of a mighty organ, and with the final peal of that dreadful anthem, there came a sound as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling beasts, and every other voice of the unconverted wilderness were mingling in according with the voice of guilty man in homage to the prince of all. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly. At the same moment, the fire on the rock shot redly forth and formed a glowing arc above its base, where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude, both in garb and manner, to some grave divine of the New England churches. Bring forth the converts, cried a voice, that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word, Goodman Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation, with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood by the sympathy of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well nigh sworn that the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke wreath, while a woman, with dim features of despair, threw out her hand to warn him back. Was it his mother? But he had no power to retreat one step, nor to resist, even in thought, when the minister and good old Deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female, led between Goody Cloyce, that pious teacher of the catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes beneath the canopy of fire. Welcome, my children, said the dark figure, to the communion of your race. Ye have found, thus young, your nature and your destiny. My children, look behind you. They turned, and flashing forth, as it were, in a sheet of flame, the fiend worshippers were seen. The smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage. There, resumed the sable form, are all whom ye have reverenced from youth. Ye deemed them holier than yourselves, and shrank from your own sin contrasting it with their lives of righteousness and prayer for aspirations heavenward. Yet, here are they all, in my worshipping assembly. This night it shall be granted you to know their secret deeds, how hoary-bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households, how many a woman, eager for widow's weeds, has given her husband a drink at bedtime, and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom. How beardless youth have made haste to inherit their father's wealth, and how fair damsels, blush not sweet ones, have dug little graves in the garden and bidden me 
the sole guest to an infinite's funeral. By the sympathy of your human hearts for sin, ye shall scent out all the places, whether in church, bedchamber, street, field, or forest, where crimes has been committed, and shall exult to behold the whole earth one strain of guilt, one mighty blood spot. Far more than this, it shall be yours to penetrate in every bosom the deep mystery of sin, the fountain of all wicked arts, and which inexhaustibly supplies more evil impulses than human power, than my power at its utmost can make manifest in deeds. And now, my children, look upon each other. They did so, and, by the blaze of the hell-kindled torches, the wretched man beheld his faith, and the wife, her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. Lo, there ye stand, my children, said the figure in a deep and solemn tone, almost sad, with its despairing awfulness, as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. Depending upon one another's hearts, ye had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. Now, are ye undeceived? Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race. Welcome, repeated the fiend worshippers in one cry of despair and triumph. And there stood the only pair, as it seemed, who were yet hesitating on the verge of wickedness in this dark world. A basin was hollowed, naturally, in the rock. Did it contain water, reddened by the lurid light? Or was it blood? Or, perchance, a liquid flame? Herein did the shape of evil dip his hand, and prepared to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads, that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife and faith at him. What polluted wretches would the next glance show them to each other, shuddering alike at what they disclosed and what they saw? Faith! Faith! cried the husband. Look up to heaven and resist the wicked one. Whether faith obeyed, he knew not. Hardly had he spoken when he found himself amid calm night and solitude, listening to a roar of the wind, which died heavily away through the forest. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coldest dew. The next morning, young Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was at a domestic worship and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. What God doth the wizard pray to, quoth Goodman Brown. Goody Cloyce, that excellent old Christian, stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning's milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child as from the grasp of the fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting house, he spied the head of Faith with the pink ribbons gazing anxiously forth and bursting into such joy at sight of him that she skipped along the street 
and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly and sadly into her face and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch meeting? Be it so, if you will. But alas, it was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown. A stern, a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man, did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen, because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence, and with his hand on the open Bible, of the sacred truths of our religion, and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths, and of future bliss or misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the grey blasphemer and his hearers. Often, awaking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and at morning or eventide, when the family knelt down in prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself, and gazed sternly at his wife, and turned away. And when he had lived long and was born to his grave, a hoary corpse followed by faith, an aged woman, and children and grandchildren, a goodly procession, besides neighbors, not a few, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone, for his dying hour was gloom.